You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and uh, Twitter is a great source of information if you use it, um, I suppose, cautiously, and if you select what you want to see and uh, are selective about your feed. And a tweet came out on the 18th of October, and I was fascinated because it said, at the conclusion of their first national convention, the Self-Determination for Ireland League of Canada and Newfoundland was officially established at Ottawa. And the account that tweeted it was Stephen Egan, and Stephen is a Queen's University Belfast PhD student studying transnational history of Irish partition in Canada and Newfoundland and Australia. So um, I reached out to wanting to find out more, and uh, Stephen is here with me now. Stephen, thanks a million, first of all, for coming along, and uh, okay, well, taking the time. So, um, we're, uh, Sunday was a, a centenary of the Self-Determination <laughs> League uh, of Ireland and Canada, and uh, the first meeting held in Ottawa. Uh, the convention was held in Ottawa on Saturday, the 16th and 17th of October, 1920. Before this convention got underway, a uh, convention normally happens when there has been a bit, a bit of traction and momentum. Tell me a bit about the traction and momentum that, that was happening that got this convention to happen. Uh, absolutely. So uh, taking a step back, if we may, um, go all the way back to the general election uh, in Great Britain and Ireland in 1918. Uh, so it's just after the end of the First World War. Um, there is this uh, rise, uh, this almost kind of political revolution in Ireland where Sinn Féin, the Irish Republican Party, wins the majority of seats on the island of Ireland. They win 73 out of 105. Um, and this is the first time in which, uh, I suppose, Ireland's uh, people has say on the kind of the voting um, and the situation. Obviously, you have the change in politics with the representation of the People Act. You have a lot more people being enfranchised to vote. Um, and there's a very resounding victory for Sinn Féinism. Now, when people leave Ireland, they don't stop being Irish. Uh, and certainly Irish is something that you know, many people today all over the world, not just in Canada, still very much uh, respond to, you know, hyphenated identities and such, such as, you know, Irish Canadians, Irish Americans. Um, and so in a, in a strange way, uh, at the conclusion of the general election and the results being announced, there is a mass meeting in Montreal, um, of interested uh, Irish Canadians who are in- very curious about what's, what it is that's what's been going on. Um, but they're also confused. Um, so you have, for example, the former mayor of Montreal, a chap called James Guerin, who, who basically says that he wants to support, um, you know, the, the cause uh, of, of Irish independence, but he doesn't understand what Sinn Féinism is. He doesn't understand what the party is. Um, and you have other prominent figures there as well. So you have prominent MPs such as Charles Gavin Power, uh, the MP for Quebec South, who's also attending these kind of events. Um, and there's very much a degree of confusion because these people are Canadians uh, for the land of their birth. Um, many of them are also Irish as well. They have Irish connections. Um, but they're also British insofar as they are subjects of the empire. And this is something that uh, I guess is kind of forgotten today that once upon a time, a lot of people very strongly uh, associated with these three identities, uh, especially in Canada. So this is the kind of context in which this kind of organisation emerges in. Now, um, as the Irish Revolution, as it's termed today, gets underway, um, Eamon de Valera, the, um, 
a leader of Sinn Féin and uh, I suppose the, the political leader of the revolution uh, is very much uh, engaged with the fact that one of the great resources and strengths that Ireland has is its diaspora uh, across the world. And so you have connections there that he's seeking to tap into. Um, and so uh, there's been a lot of attention placed on the connections with the United States. Uh, and of course, he does, uh, you know, tours, uh, rallying political support and finances. Um, but less attention has been given to those, shall we say, within the British Empire. Um, and Canada especially has been kind of neglected in that kind of way. Uh, and so this is kind of where this organization comes out of. It's an attempt to kind of get uh, a rallying point, an almost a, a focal point organization for people to rally around to present their support. Um, prior to this, uh, as we see in, in Montreal in 1918, people are engaged, people are very interested, but they're not entirely sure what it is. Of course, this is the days before Twitter, before the Internet, uh, and so there's, you know, the way that information moves around, not just Canada, but moves around the world is very, very different. Uh, and so support was largely kind of contained within uh, fraternal societies. Uh, and so one of the best examples of this would be the ancient order of Hibernians. Um, at the time, that it's a, it's, a, it's a North American organization. So the president uh, is an American, uh, but the provincial president for Canada is a guy called Charles James Foy, uh, who's been there since 1910. Uh, and he really is important in terms of this kind of period because during the First World War, uh, Foy basically saved the Hibernians from splitting um, between the more radical Republican elements of the Hibernians in the United States versus the more pro-imperial, uh, dominion-supporting uh, uh, Hibernians that you'd find in Canada. Um, so it's very, very different. But, of course, these uh, this divide exists not just between the United States and Canada, but it also exists within Canada. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get uh, all these different groups around the table supporting the same cause. Um, and ultimately, that's what the Self-Determination League tries to do, uh, is trying to reconcile all these different groups uh, and kind of get everybody to the table. Um, and I think it's quite noticeable that um, it takes until 1920 to do this. Now, there have been attempts... Um, the idea of an Irish Union had been floated previously. Um, however, the various groups in Canada weren't necessarily willing to listen because of this disagreement of, should Ireland be a republic? Should it be a dominion? Or should it be, as the British were offering at that time, um, a simply a, a devolved region of the United Kingdom? Um, home rule, I suppose, is uh, not the easiest term to kind of deal with because to, to the uh, British government at that time, uh, what they were offering was a uh, not even federalism. It's a um, devolved area as Scotland and Wales are today uh, as part of the United Kingdom. So they'd have their own parliament. They can govern some limited of their own affairs. Um, but obviously that's very different from dominion status that, say, Canada enjoyed, which was essentially independence. Um, but when the time came, Canada would obviously come to the cause uh, or, or come to the aid of the, of the British as required. Uh, and, of course, um, imperial connections, too, as well, with the, you know, the monarch and such. Uh, so it's a very different world uh, that this organization emerges in um, compared to our own today. So one, there's two things um, puzzle me in one way. <clears throat> uh, one is that it's Canada and Newfoundland. 
And at that time, of course, it was 1949 that Newfoundland became part of Canada. So Newfoundland was its own country that to have successfully managed to pull Newfoundland and Canada under the one umbrella must have also required some very strong networking. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's strong connections between the two, uh, especially uh, in, in, in this organization. I guess um, when the league is established, it, it's done more for convenience. Um, uh, St. John is included in the tours um, of talks that are given uh, by the prominent leaders, and I will come on to them, um, try, trying to connect them together. Um, I guess it's uh, a testament to the strength of the fact that you know the Irish in Canada are very much located in the east, you know, in the maritime regions. You know, Newfoundland in particular has a very strong Irish connection. And when this organisation was founded, um, it started off in Montreal, um, actually in May 1920, and then of course they have that time to kind of build up uh, before their um, big convention. In, in the, we're kind of marking the centenary off here. Um, and they have the opportunity to kind of get people together um, and to kind of get this information flowing, not just from uh, Montreal centrally, but then spraying it out across all of Canada as best they can. But when you mention the ability to attract members for a convention, uh, 20,000 joined up in three months. That's phenomenal in that time period. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess it, it, it's a testament to the fact that people are engaged for a variety of reasons. Um, so the Self-Determination League welcomed not just people of uh, Irish descent, um, but also, um, you know, basically anybody was willing who was interested and willing to join um, were able to do so. And of course, um, if, you're, if we're thinking about buzzwords and such, um, self-determination is a very potent very political term, especially in the aftermath of the First World War, um, because the um, essentially in terms of the legitimizing of the blood sacrifice that had been paid by the Canadian forces, um, uh, the Canadian government bought into the Wilsonian ideal of self-determination, and this is what we're fighting for, the rights of small nations such as Catholic Belgium, who is, you know, very much upplayed, especially in uh, towards um, Irish Catholics, um, both in Ireland and also in Canada as well. Um, these ideas are very much bought into. Um, so the choice of name is, is very interesting um, because without that self-determination title, um, they wouldn't have been able to gather the same attention. And in fact, when I mentioned that, I was talking about the, uh, the Irish Union of 1918, um, other attempts to unify um, the Irish fraternal groups under a figurehead to support um, Ireland politically um, had been attempted, and by early 1920 they had, you know, they had basically been there, but they hadn't been successful. Um, so you have the Irish Canadian National League, um, it, which again is started in Montreal, and I, and I expect that the, uh, the St. Patrick Society of Montreal, being the oldest um, Irish Canadian society, but also the most conservative, were probably involved with that. Um, you also have a, a, an organisation called the Canadian Friends of Irish Freedom, um, who are essentially copying the American uh, Friends of Irish Freedom. Uh, and they start this league in uh, Winnipeg in May, in fact, the 2nd of May, 1920, so just before the Self-Determination League is founded. Uh, and as well as that, all the way over at the Pacific, you have the Irish National Organization in Vancouver, 
Uh, again, not much is known about those, but they're attempting to kind of bring everyone together under their own ideas of what a new Ireland would look like uh, and basically trying to support uh, the cause. So you have uh, all of these kind of issues coming together, but the, these individual organisations are deemed too polarising. Uh, either some deem it to be too conservative and some deem them to be too extreme. Um, using the title Self-Determination League for Ireland um, is very politically smart. Uh, and you kind of see uh, the uh, correspondence between one of the main founder, a lady called Catherine Hughes, uh, and Eamon de Valera as they have discussed the political ramifications for this name. Uh, in fact, de Valera uh, says to her in, in during correspondence that um, did we did did we quite get the name right because they had initially said it would be the Self Determination League for Ireland of Canada and Newfoundland rather than the Self Determination for Ireland League. A little bit of a not necessarily a translation error, but certainly the way that it was written down at the, at the time, and um, things didn't quite work out exactly how it is. Um, but it's a very small detail. You can kind of see that the name was meticulously planned for this purpose. Um, and, of course, de Valera did not want to be associated, or at least publicly associated with this league, um, to fear that it would politicise it too much for the more conservative Irish in Canada. Uh, they didn't want it to be associated with Irish republicanism. They would just kind of get as many people on board with this idea of self-determination for Ireland, uh, and this is what we shall have. When you say they didn't want it to be associated or overly associated with Irish republicanism, I see the first president, um, Ulsterman Robert Lindsay Crawford, uh, was an Ulster Protestant and former Orange Order member. Um, so was the uh, Orange Order... Did they buy in in any way, or was this what they would have perceived as totally contrary to their political long-term objectives? Uh, yes, certainly they are engaged, um, but it is in diametric opposition uh, to this league. Um, and so uh, pr prior to the league being formed, um, the situation in Canada is that uh, the Orange Order is particularly powerful, especially in the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, which, in fact, um, there is the expression which is often used in the period that uh, Toronto is the Belfast of Canada. Um, given the strength um, that Orangism had within the city, uh, and that is then reaffirmed. So as De Valera is looking uh, abroad uh, for support, um, so are um, so are I suppose Ulster. Uh, also, unionists are looking for support from, I suppose, their diaspora, if you want to, to separate the two. Uh, and so in the uh, spring of 1920, um, a delegation is launched um, from the north of Ireland to, to the United States and Canada, uh, essentially for propaganda purposes in the support of the union um, between Ireland uh, and Great Britain. Uh, and that is headed by William Coote, who is the MP for South Tyrone. Uh, and essentially, it, it's, a, it's a, a propaganda mission uh, in order to kind of promote the, the alternative side of things. Because, of course, you know, uh, the northeast of Ireland had particularly benefited from the Union, uh, economically speaking, whereas uh, Dublin had not uh, prospered. Um, Belfast in particular and the kind of industrial section has benefited very much uh, and so they have the view that you know the union has been good they don't want to see 
Ireland as a republic, and that they don't even want a, a dominion home rule either. They're quite happy with the status quo. Um, and so Cooch uh, is welcomed rapturously on the, on the streets of Toronto along with his other fellow delegates. Um, you know, he's welcomed and um, dines with the, the Empire Club and gives a very stirring speech uh, about, you know, the situation in Ireland because, of course, at this point, the War of Independence has been going for just about a year and is beginning to heat up um, as well as, you know, kind of um, denouncing the violence that they're seeing in Ireland. Uh, and the Orange Order is very much in support of that. Um, and that, I suppose, explains why the order is so vehement against Lindsay Crawford. Uh, so in Canada, he, he usually drops the, uh, the the Robert. I'm not entirely sure why he does this, but he, he goes by Lindsay Crawford for the most part. Uh, and he had arrived in Canada in 1910 after, uh, of course, in, in, in his native Ulster. Uh, he was uh, initially a member of the Orange Order. Uh, and had actually established his own independent order, actually independent Orange Order, uh, which was a, a little bit more liberal um, in its approach. Um, but he'd been ejected from that as well uh, because he had essentially become a home ruler by that point. And so he decided to uh, apply his trade as a journalist in uh, in Canada instead, and he, he established his own newspaper, The Toronto Statesman. Um, in which it becomes one of the main uh, mouthpieces for the Self-Determination League. Um, but because of this uh, representation of himself as an Ulster Protestant turned home ruler, uh, he was seen as particularly dangerous by the, the Orange Order because of what he represented of someone who had almost changed sides, if you want to use that kind of language. Um, and of course, being such a prominent leader in this, uh, organization made him all the more dangerous. So throughout the tours that the Self-Determination League um, uh, put on during its existence, um, the, uh, Crawford is actively suppressed wherever possible, um, especially by supporters of the, uh, of the Orange Order. When you have an organization that has as large a membership as that would have had in its first year, <clears throat> I would think naturally every effort would be made to influence the mainstream political parties in Canada at that time and to try and exert influence. Was that happening? Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it, it's, it's quite the opposite, in fact, uh, would you believe. Uh, and the reason for that was, is that on parliamentary record, uh, the, Houses, the House of Commons of Canada had already passed motions of support uh, for Irish Home Rule. Uh, going back uh, to uh, the 1880s, during the, when the Irish Home Rule was first mooted, uh, and in fact a unanimous resolution had been passed um, in 1882 and had been sent um, to the imperial government in Westminster um, and had been um, very politely told in the firmest possible terms, um, this is a British issue, um, we would like you to never pass your judgment on this again, please do not. This isn't your place. Uh, such was the relationship with, within the empire at the time. Um, so that the Canadians were very strongly rebuffed uh, from making these suggestions. Um, and so if, if we fast forward again to 1920, um, there is a fear that if they were to try and engage this politically, that, that the, the previous resolutions would be expunged from the record and that they would actually lose support. So the League very actively says, look, we already have 
passed motions of support in our own parliament in support of this, but they don't go down the, the route that you see elsewhere in the world, like in Australia, where the self-determination becomes very much associated with the Labour Party. Um, we don't see that in Canada, and it's an active uh, attempt on their part not to do so. Now, that doesn't mean that their membership weren't necessarily political. Um, there are examples uh, like F.W. Girish, um in Montreal, who's a well-known socialist, um, and, you know, very much in the kind of socialist, almost kind of communist kind of party, in, the, in those kind of terms, um, it, it, as, is an example of someone who's involved in this league, and also politically, um, but certainly it's something that the league actually wants to kind of tap on the head. They don't want to get involved uh, in politics. At least in 1920, by 1921, there is a little bit more willingness uh, to do so, um, but it's never realised to its full full potential. Essentially, they just try to maintain themselves as what we would call today a pressure group, um, trying to lobby uh, the government rather than seeking election. Going back to the Orange Order, I would have imagined then that the Orange Order, who were quite strongly politically connected, I think, uh, they surely must have been operating as a lobby group to counteract mm-hmm. it. Uh, yes, they are. They, they are. They use their uh, their political uh, position as much as possible to kind of suppress it. Uh, and a good example of this is the fact that under pressure from the Orange Order, um, the convention which uh, took place in October 1920, um, it was originally supposed to take place in Toronto. Um, but the powers that be, especially prominent Orangemen such as uh, Horatio Hocken, who is the, the head of the, um, he's the Grand Master of the Orange Order at the time, uh, and the editor of their, of their official mouthpiece, the Sentinel, um, using their powers, they were able to ban uh, the, the uh, convention from the city under, uh, I suppose, sedition laws. Uh, so the idea that what these people are going to say uh, is in... Um, I suppose, opposition to Canadian values as part of the empire. Uh, and so they were able to do that, um, but they didn't do that in Ottawa. Um, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, convention eventually went ahead in St. Patrick's Hall, um, which has now been destroyed. It was uh, demolished in 2003. Um, but that didn't stop, um, I suppose, supporters of Orangism protesting. And in fact, the delegates uh, of the convention were actually egged on the way in um, eggs were thrown uh, at them, and the, in fact, the entire police force of Ottawa was put on standby to defend this convention because it almost became, in that kind of sense, uh, an issue of freedom of speech. Um, and so the suppression is almost kind of like whack a mole, whereas, in one sense, uh, one side would argue that um, what was being uttered at these events was tantamount to sedition to support a Republic breaking away from the empire. The other side would say, well, this is Canada. We have freedom of speech. We have uh, freedom of expression. We should be allowed to vocalize it. Uh, so there's, a, there's very fine lines being uh, walked by both sides, uh, which makes for an absolutely kind of fascinating history, uh, especially in this period as well, because Canada is still uh, finding itself um, as its own, uh, you know, dominion as a way, you know, it's not that old. It's within 60 years since um, Canada was established. Uh, uh, and I suppose the relationship between Canada and the empire as a whole had fundamentally altered with the First World War. Um, but at that point in time, the extent to which it had been altered hadn't yet been fully appreciated by 
uh, people at the time, especially politicians. So, Stephen, then the league uh, in Canada and similarly around the world in Australia, wherever, did they have any real influence that would then you could be point to ultimately and say this was the tangible result of their efforts that uh, led to be it the Canadian government, the Australian government or whether but particularly the Canadian government at sub- sometimes subsequently uh, being willing to acknowledge Ireland uh, after it established its independence. Did it create that type of political environment where that type of move was easier? Uh, I, I suppose this is the uh, the million dollar question. Uh, you know, this happens, uh, but why is it important? Um, and as, and uh, as as difficult as it is, uh, there is no clear response to that um, because of the way how the Irish question is ultimately settled. Um, so uh, there is a treaty is reached um, between um, the British and, and the Irish Republican Army uh, in the summer of 1921. Uh, and talks are, are, sorry, a truce is announced uh, and a treaty is agreed in December 1921, um, which ultimately ends uh, the uh, the Irish War of Independence, as most people would categorise it. Obviously, there is distinctions when you're talking about uh, Northern Ireland and uh, there's a whole other uh, historical debate to be had there. Uh, but certainly for the most part, uh, the mainstream of history would say the war uh, ends um, in December 1921, uh, and the settlement which is reached is partitionist, so there is the de facto recognition of Northern Ireland as there's six counties uh, of the northeast, uh, and there will be a Dominion uh, home rule arrangement given to Ireland, or to the remaining 26 counties, I should say, which then became the Irish Free State, uh, and then later in 1947-48 became uh, the Republic of Ireland. Um, so there is... Uh, Generally in Canada, this agreement is respected. Uh, and it's very much liked. Uh, the majority of Irish Canadians support Dominion Home Rule status. They're not fans of partition, um, but it's almost a, if it's a way to get the conflict to end, uh, to bring peace to Ireland, uh, it is generally accepted. Um, not by all. For example, um, uh, C.J. Foy, the um, uh, Hibernian um, Canadian leader, uh, he's not in favour of this. And even in 1925 is saying, you know, there is still things to be done. We must accept it if the people of Ireland accept it. But I personally do not. I, I would like to see, you know, all of Ireland uh, united and to be a republic. Um, having said all of that, though, um, there are suggestions uh, of which the League makes its impact. Uh, and one of those would be um, uh, the idea that uh, the League had successfully moved Arthur Megan, who's the uh, Prime Minister after Robert Borden, um, uh, so he's the Canadian Prime Minister. Uh, apparently, uh, Megan had received correspondence from the Self-Determination League and had brought it with him from Canada to London uh, for the Imperial Conference of 1921. Um, and at one of the meetings, he raised the Irish question, the Irish issue. Now, there is no formal record of that as far as I can I can see, um, but it seems highly unlikely that given the nature of the Irish diaspora around the British Empire at the time, that if Ireland were not discussed, 
uh, it would be very much the elephant in the room. Um, it would be amazing. Now, on the official records, it, it isn't discussed, uh, but certainly behind the scenes with some cigars or whiskey, politicians do talk off the record. Um, and so the report that actually that I am citing here is actually from Australia, talking about the uh, Canadian situation and reporting it as a great success. Uh, and Megan, in fact, has um, Irish roots himself. I believe he's second generation, um, an Irishman of second generation. So he kind of tied into this narrative. Now, it's, I can't provide you any proof of that. Um, but what can be kind of definitively tied down uh, is this suggestion that um, whilst the Imperial Conference was going on, um, the treaty talks were also going on in London. So you have the Dominion leaders uh, and you have um, the uh, Irish plenipotentiaries who had been appointed to go to and negotiate in London, uh, all in the same city at the same time. And it's reported that um, Lloyd George had said that uh, once upon a time, um, Downing Street governed the Dominions. Now the Dominions are governing Downing Street uh, after a particularly uh, long day of negotiations with Ireland uh, with the Irish representatives. So this, I suppose, is where the kind of tangible um, impact of these organisations had. Um, there was uh, a, an event in Paris in January 1922, which, of course, is after the treaty uh, is agreed. And I think that's the really important part, um, which was organised by Catherine Hughes. Um, which brought together the self-determination leagues and their kind of uh, affiliate bodies uh, from, uh, from around the world together uh, in, a, in a kind of grand style in this, uh, what's called the Irish Race Conference. Um, but because of when it happens, essentially the conference devolves into a, uh, I suppose, a, an argument between the representatives of do we kind of support uh, the treaty, or do we not? Um, and it very much becomes almost a kind of political game between uh, treatyites and anti-treatyites from Ireland trying to get support. But certainly within the Dominions, they don't find that support. Uh, in fact, the Canadians don't even go. Uh, the only representative for Canada at the, the Paris Race Conference is Catherine Hughes, by virtue of already being there. The Canadians see this issue as settled. We accept the treaty for the most part. Um, it's not ideal. But it's, uh, it, it was deemed as a satisfactory conclusion to the events that Ireland had seen. So when you said the Canadians accepted that, uh, does that then mean that the League effectively had come to the end of its value? Uh, or at what, how, for how much longer did the League stay in existence? Uh, the League stays in existence. It, it's, it's kind of hard to say. It, it breaks apart... Uh, little by little. Uh, so certainly by 1925, it had um, all but ceased to function. Uh, and there's kind of this information about uh, things such as office supplies and desks and all these kind of things being kind of sold uh, and the remaining money donated to the uh, Irish relief funds um, for be it refugees who, you know, left Ireland uh, or, you know, for the rebuilding of um, the two islands, depending on where the, the funds would be destined to. Um, uh, but ultimately, um, with the satisfaction of the fact that an agreement had been reached, um, the League essentially uh, stops functioning. And um, it, it, I suppose the, the connections that were made uh, in George for a period of time too. I suppose one thing that we I haven't mentioned yet is the kind of the uh, links between um, the Irish Canadians 
uh, and French Canadians, who of course had been traditionally rivals, but uh, at the con- at the the first uh, uh, convention uh, had very much come together uh, in support in, in under a, a, a support uh, network or an arrangement between the likes of Henry Barossa and uh, Armand Levine, uh, who actually gets the league in a little bit of hot water because they're more radical in their perspectives. Uh, compared to, say, the likes of Lindsay Crawford, who at least at that point in time is very much a Dominion Home Ruler. Later, he becomes a Republican, but at that moment in time, he was a Dominion Home Rule supporter. Um, and I suppose that's one of the things as well with the uh, Self-Determination League in Canada in particular, is that they're never able to fully reconcile those more extreme elements who want a Republic versus Dominion Home Rulerism. In fact, even debates over whether Canada should break away from the empire almost going to kind of get sucked into this. Uh, and I believe later on, although I haven't had a chance yet to have a look at some of the uh, uh, French newspapers, um, almost questions of um, uh, Quebec independence or get involved as well. Um, you know, comparisons are made, particularly in regard to partition, uh, with um, if all of Ireland were to become a dominion, would Ulster become the Quebec of Ireland? Uh, these kind of comparisons are made. Um, but it's certainly very, very interesting. So why would you think that this period in history and this um, the conference that happened in Ottawa is, I guess, so unknown? I mean, I think that's a really good question um, as, to, as, as to why it's, it, it's, it's not known. Um, I suppose there is the kind of popular conception um, of uh, Irish republicanism linked to the United States, and I suppose that's the more uh, kind of glamorized side of this, is that certainly historically speaking, um, the idea of an Irish republic, you know, is is you know seminal to the the Irish state as you see by the commemorations of 1916. This was um, the Irish government very clearly saying that this was the birth of our nation uh, as we know it today, and we're marking it accordingly. Um, Dominion Home Rule, in from that perspective, was uh, almost in some eyes a defeat, um, and it was accepting something that they didn't want, and partition was accepting a defeat as well. Um, and that's something, obviously, that's still ongoing today with um, Republicans in Northern Ireland, um, where the, some of these issues have never yet been reconciled. And so I suppose the idea of supporting Dominion Home Rule has over the years kind of been revised as a, as, as a negative rather than supporting what the people voted for in 1918. It was a compromise. Uh, so I suppose that's probably why it's not as well remembered, um, comparatively speaking. Likewise, I would have to say then, why, from an academic perspective, uh, has there not been more people like yourself um, who have zoned in on this particular period of time, this um, group, and devoted more research and study to it? Uh, I suppose at at this moment in time, uh, it's a great time to be involved in, in this field in particular. There's some great academics uh, writing on this. Um, so previously you have Mark McGowan, who's done excellent work, uh, a little bit earlier in the period. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, kind of his work kind of concludes really in, in, in 1920, uh, and he's done great work on the um, Irish Canadians and, and the First World War. Um, Patrick Mannion is another 
um, is, is a relatively new academic coming through who's um, produced an excellent book called A Land of Dreams, um, which comparatively looks at Newfoundland, Canada, and the United States. Uh, and he, he mentions the Self-Determination League. But I suppose because it's we are in what we call in Ireland this decade of centenaries, uh, more attention is being focused on this. Um, and I suppose that at the moment as well, um, greater recognition is being uh, shown to the fact that the Irish Revolution didn't just happen in Ireland uh, and the the uh, the War of Independence was not necessarily, I suppose, physically it was fought um, between uh, the, uh, you know, the British forces uh, and the Irish Republican Army, but certainly the battle for hearts and minds didn't take place just in Ireland. It, it takes place on a kind of global level. Uh, and this is something now which academics are beginning to explore um, and it really opens it up for some very interesting projects in the future. And I suppose to uh, bring it to what would have been a point in history that was somewhat of a conclusion, it was in 1948, of course, while in Canada, uh, Taoiseach then John A. Costello announced uh, that uh, Ireland was going to become a republic. Uh, so mm-hmm. that the geography of the league and that subsequently his visit to Ottawa uh, was where that, I suppose, the ultimate change was being publicly announced. Mm-hmm. Are there any other interesting aspects of this that we, I didn't zone in on that we should be commenting upon? The, the one element that we could probably give a little bit more attention to is, is Catherine Hughes, just yes. about how remarkable... Uh, she was as an individual, um, and I mean that, and I'm, I'll uh, kind of internationalise her uh, influence, uh, if I may, just by uh, basically kind of recounting a little bit of what she does as a figure, because very little attention has been given to her. In fact, Fordrick O'Shiel, who uh, wrote the biography on her in 2013, is the only piece of literature that really gives any kind of sustained focus to her. Um, and so is, is, she's born into an Irish Catholic family um, in Prince Edward Island, uh, in 1876. Uh, I was born into this uh, kind of um, conservative Irish-Canadian group, I mean conservative in the, in, the, in the kind of political sense in terms of the Irish question, um, quite conservative, but uh, and having started her career as a, as a, as a school teacher and a journalist, um, she finds herself working in England in 1914 and, and mixing with the Irish community there um, and especially the kind of more radical elements and this is where she's kind of first exposed to these ideas, uh, looking at Irish republicanism. Uh, and so in 1918, she returns to Canada and actually then moves to the United States to help De Valera organize his 1919 tour. Um, and it's kind of during this period of time, historians aren't exactly sure when it, when it happens. Um, she meets with De Valera and they become, uh, you know, associated together. Uh, and he recognizes uh, her worth it not just as a as a orator a supreme orator but also in organization in organization uh, and so uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier it's de Valera who sends Catherine Hughes to organize the Canadians uh, and within a very short period of time she achieves what couldn't have been achieved in the previous two years that the self-determination league comes into existence and then she embarks on a on a on the kind of the first self determination league tour, um, of course spreading information at you know public events, um, you know 
at the beginning, it doesn't start out great. It starts in Halifax um, in July. Very few people attend. However, after doing a couple more talks, she then returns to Halifax less than two weeks later, and over a 1,000 people are there to hear her speak. Uh, so it builds momentum in a very, very short amount of time. Um, and then she proceeds to go all the way from the maritime region all the way over to Vancouver. So it's stopping, you know, big kind of major centres. So Charlottetown, Sydney, Chatham, Moncton, all in kind of New Brunswick, the maritime region, before then hitting Winnipeg, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, all the kind of big centres and sets up leagues where she goes. Um and it's just it's during this point of time that um, it's a testament to her brilliance. Uh, in the, she writes to De Valera saying, soon I'll need more to do. Um, and so perhaps Archbishop Mannix, who's the uh, um, uh, Roman Catholic Archbishop uh, in um, Australia, uh, perhaps he could use some help. Uh, and so very quickly then, um, but even before the uh, convention, um, she then uh, takes a short break uh, and then and then redeploys to Australia, where she then goes on to organise uh, the Australian uh, Self Determination for Ireland League. Um, and her I suppose, her co-worker, I suppose if you could call it, uh, a guy called Osmond uh, Osmond Grattan Esmond, uh, is detained trying to get into New Zealand. Um, and he announces himself after he's caught as a as an envoy for the Irish Republic. Um, Hughes is then, at the very last moment, given uh, another dominion, uh, uh, New Zealand, to organise, uh, which she does very, very quickly. Um, and then after all of that, then returns um, uh, to the United States to continue the efforts there before then being allocated to the uh, Irish Race Convention to organise. And she does so then in, in January 1922, um, to, which obviously the, the impact of which I suppose the um, the discourse of history kind of undermines because of when it takes place. They didn't know the treaty was going to be finished then. Um, it would be an interesting uh, uh, event had it not taken place when it did. If it had taken place a couple of months earlier, um, I wonder what the impact would have been. It's impossible to say, of course. Um, but truly a, a phenomenal figure who doesn't get enough attention uh, and I hope that by the time my uh, research is finished, hopefully a little bit more attention uh, will be given to her. So, Stephen, when you say by the time your research is finished, I take it uh, at that point we're going to see this between the covers of a book. Uh, I hope I hope very much so that um, I'm in the, the, the final stages of writing up at the moment. Um, so there's a, a little bit more research to do um, locally here, um, lockdown permitting. Um, but hopefully um, by next year it will be finished, uh, and then hopefully um, uh, in a book one day. And access to sources, has that been a challenge, or has information been readily available? Um, it's, it's, it's been a little bit of a, of a mixed bag uh, in that kind of regard. Um, I was uh, very lucky to be able to, to visit Canada there uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I had a great time. I was able to visit um, mainly um, in the east, so Toronto, Ottawa, um, uh, Montreal, and Quebec. Uh, and I've been able to have some stuff digitized um, f- from uh, New Brunswick. Um, the Canadian stuff is quite nicely centralized uh, in the fantastic facilities, the National Archives and Library in Ottawa. Um, but lots of it is on microfiche, so looking at things like newspapers. Um, some of it can be impossible to get remotely. Um, 
compare in comparison with Australia, um, they have a facility called Trove, um, in which they have uh, digitized most newspapers, so they can be accessible here. Um, but of course, um, in terms of the smaller collections where it's individuals, letters, and things like that, they tend to still be on paper. So you have to be able to go and get your hands on them. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much indebted to the archivists who've spent their careers kind of putting together these collections um, and making them accessible. Um, of course, at the moment, uh, it's one of the, the big difficulties in the, in the times in which we live. I was supposed to be back in Canada um, at the beginning of this year, and uh, that had to be cancelled. And then um, I have uh, further trips to, to, um, to look at some um, of uh, Winston Churchill's papers as Secretary of State for the Dominions in Cambridge, which I can't access yet. Um, so it's, it's very much a challenge of the kind of history that you're doing, um, that everything doesn't quite come as easily as it would if you were looking at uh, the local level. Um, but I think it's important to kind of look at the, the big picture, uh, as it were, as the Irish Revolution, that it's, um, we have a very good idea of um, how things played out here in Ireland and how uh, relations moved or the relationship between um, the British and the Irish has developed over the, the last hundred years. Um, but less attention is given to the, the Irish outside of Ireland, um, who are very much today recognised, especially by the Irish government with the establishment of the, um, the Dominion's office, or sorry, not Dominion's office, the Asper office, I beg your pardon, um, looking to tap into this great resource um, that Ireland has. Indeed. Well, Stephen, we're going to wrap it up there. It has been fascinating learning about this, and uh, as the, you bring together the rest of your research, and it does and make it to the bookshelves. I look forward to uh, when that day happens, and uh, I hope we can reconnect uh, in relation to any other the wonderful historic occasions that I know you are involved in. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. And well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And if anybody wants to share any of their information or has anything, are you? Where can you be reached? I know you're out there on Twitter. Uh, yes, I am indeed. Uh, so I can I can be reached on uh, Twitter uh, at macagon95. I use um, the the uh, Irish form of Egan, which is my surname, uh, for my Twitter handle. Um, but I, you can also find me if you uh, Google my name uh, and type in uh, QB or Queen's University Belfast. Uh, contact details for me should come up there as well. Thanks, William Stephen. Thank you.